Women Making Waves. Now, I hear, Linda, that you've been quite interested in the term huga. Is Huga. that right? Huga. Huga. Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. It's, it, it sort of came to the fore a few years ago, didn't it? And it's Danish and it yeah. means cosy, warm. <laughs> it, it's, it's the winter thing. Because yes. you know the Danes have terrible winters, don't they? So they, they like this being by the fire, being mm-hmm. all cosy on the sofa, all wrapped mm-hmm. up in something furry and warm. Mm-hmm. And, and adverts pick it up as well, don't they? they adverts do. pick up in this huga thing yes. um, where, you, you know, you've got people by fires wearing very fluffy socks. And there's a <laughs> famous chocolate one and everything about it is very... <laughs> Soft and cosy. And then she kind of bites into a a, a chocolate, which makes you really want to have the chocolate. What makes me (laughs) think about, yes, it's fantastic, isn't it? You come out of the cold, you come into the house. If you're lucky enough to get, you've got a nice fire, nice live. Do you say live fires? You say real fires, don't you? I think normally it's real. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Live live fire sounds a bit like the whole house is on fire. (laughs) Exactly. And the fire fire brigade are standing by. That doesn't sound good. No, no, no. No, or a forest fire. No, not good. But the thing what makes me laugh is that you've got to have the prep before you sit down. So you've got to make sure the logs are by the side of the fire (laughs) before you can put the fire in. It's just not very hygge, is it? No, you're absolutely right. You've got to go outside. Outside to get your logs. Freezing out there. Freezing. And what is that if you go outside and there's no logs? You're not going to have your hygge, are you? So instead of looking all cosy in the sofa, you're probably going yeah. to be covered in bits from the yes, logs. Your hands right. are going to be mucky. Yes. Sawdust. <laughs> Sawdust everywhere <laughs> down your trousers. Yeah. So when you get to that stage, that wonderful picture where you see the cosy socks and the mug yeah, yeah, yeah. and the blanket in front of you, yeah. by the time you have reached that moment, yeah. it's time to go to bed. I would, I would say they've got staff. Yes, <laughs> that's they the only do. way. The only way to be <laughs> is to have staff. I know, I know. I am being mean. I really am being mean. But it just makes me love these no, wonderful I'm pictures. The same. I'm the same. I think you know. You you would be cutting in your socks, and you think, oh. God, I've got to put something on my feet now to go out and stack up the logs again. Of course, you will have you'll have a big basket of logs beside the fire. Oh, yes. You see, you've got to be prepared. It's a bit like when you, you go to bed and I shouldn't really say this, but I'm really into, wait for it, bed socks. I'm oh, sure, right. yeah, I, and I've got, I've just what bought myself... What kind of a cold house do you live in then? Well, yeah, very socks? cold, because Mr T, Simon, does not allow us to put the heating on until the 1st of November. So, what? <laughs> I know, I know, it's really bad, isn't it? Oh, that so is So I bad. have to put my bed socks on. So the fashion for me is PJs and bed socks. Mm-hmm. Sex appeal? None whatsoever. Mm. Well, it serves Mr T right, frankly. (laughs) (laughs) It does. Yeah, Yeah, so... We're the same in the bedroom. Windows open and everything. I mean, you know, there's always a lot of fresh air in the bedroom. It's quite cold, our bedroom. In fact, it's like a haunted blooming house when you go in there. You're talking in the the winter? All the way through. When you you open the door to the bedroom, the temperature just drops by about 20 degrees. It's just ridiculous. (laughs) You can see your breath. It's just like going outside and sleeping in the garden. Well, it is actually. Yeah, you wouldn't have it any other way. It's much better for you. And he's right. You know, if you've ever stayed in a hotel and you can't open the windows, there is just nothing worse, is there, than being in a a hothouse. 
No, it's true. It's true. And I think I've learned that as I've got older, I've realised it is much better. You're right. Not mm-hmm. to have the heating on a night and making sure we have fresh. You're absolutely- and you sleep so much better. Of course. Yeah. 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 So much better that I missed the alarm in the next morning. But that's fine. (laughs) (laughs) You don't want to do that, though. No, I don't want to do that. (laughs) But what other rituals do you have at night then? Because I've taken to Mm. reading. Have you never read before then? Not? <laughs> no, I've I'm I'm, I'm known how to read since I was five. Don't oh, I, was I, but I mean, you know, for a while I got out of the habit. I love reading. For a while I got out of the habit and I was only ever reading when I was on holiday. And it would be my thing to do would be to take book or books on my Kindle on holiday and then get through them ah. all. You know, and I'd be completely unsociable for two weeks or whatever the holiday period was. But I've recently got into reading again just all the time. So I have the Kindle beside the bed because I've got a new Kindle that, that has a backlight on it so you don't have to have the light on so you can read it in bed and not disturb anybody. So I, I read myself to sleep now. God, I would find that so frustrating, Linda, because... Why? Well, be, how many pages do you get into? It depends. You, well, it depends. You mean? I have actually, I've actually woken myself up again <laughs> by the Kindle hitting my nose. <laughs> Falling asleep, <laughs> bang straight down in my face. Have you never oh. done that? No, no, uh, I haven't because okay. I don't take a Kindle in. I, I should actually try oh, book, to get. Book would have the same effect if it was a big, heavy well, book. Well, that's true. That is very true. I think the only way of actually reading before you go to bed mm-hmm. or before you go to sleep, rather, is to go to bed early. Say yes, nine o'clock. It's making me go to bed earlier. Ah, okay. Yeah, see, so this that's is a good the thing. Gift. Like, oh, good. Whereas before, I'd be thinking, oh, I have to go to bed now. Now, <laughs> I think, oh, I'll go to, go to bed. Read my book. So much distraction, though, Linda, isn't there? Because all the wonderful box sets. I don't. I don't. No, I don't. Watch no. Okay. Box sets. So you're very. But good. I do watch the telly, and there's often something good on at nine that finishes mm. at ten. A lot of the good dramas start at That's nine o'clock true. at night. So I tend yeah. to go to bed at ten. You know, I might catch the headlines at the news just to yeah. pretend I know what's going on in the world, and then I'll go off to bed and so read till about eleven. So your your slots are then nine o'clock. You want to read your book if it's a good book. And no, if you, no, no, ten o'clock. So nine oh, o'clock oh, okay. is the good drama on the telly. Oh, I see. Ten o'clock. Right. Well, to ten past is about the headlines and the first article in the news. Then, of course, you do your ablutions and all that kind of thing. So by about half past ten, you're lying in bed and you pick up your book and off you go. By quarter two, you've got a bruised nose so, woken you up. So you're then fresh again till about eleven <laughs> o'clock. Keeps you going for another chapter. You're listening to Women Making Waves radio show and podcast, brought to you by Susie Thorpe and Linda Ness. This show is all about women doing extraordinary things. Have you um, ever learned to play the piano, Susie? Yeah, I have. And did. how did that go? Well, it went really well for about uh, a year mm-hmm. and a bit when I was... I only did it because I was trying to have a little bit more empathy with my children who I forced to play oh, the piano. Oh, you were an adult. Oh, you're an adult. Yeah. Oh, oh thought, yes. Because I learned to play when I was a child. Oh, did you? Yeah, and I was very, very keen for the first 10 minutes, like a lot of children are. Yes. And after yes. that, I went for years, you know, 
But after that, it became just a bit of a thing that I did every week. And I never used to practice. And I was absolutely shocking. Mm. I did go back to it, you know, a few years ago and retaught myself a little bit. But I still, you know, I'm very, very poor at playing the piano. But you, so you took it up as an adult. How, yeah. how did that? Can well, you play then? I, I, I probably can play a few tunes, but not a lot. Not a lot. I, you mm. know, the, the, the tunes that the children play or learn to play with, that would be my sort of top moments on that but it is interesting don't you think if you learned to play the piano when you were little Linda is it like riding a bike in a sense kind of it's almost like muscle yeah there's a Mm. kind of muscle memory that comes back quite quickly I think Mm. because of all the skills that you play and all the things that you learn and the theory and all of that kind of thing but I was always a bit rubbish because I, I didn't practice enough our guest today Brenda Lucas Ogden on the other hand she was really, really enthusiastic from the moment she started. She was just, she was one of these really, really keen people, whereas I was kind of, oh, you must learn an instrument. And I was pushed along. You know, she was in a different category altogether. And of course, now she is sublime. You should hear her playing the piano. Absolutely amazing. So we speak to her and she tells the story of uh, marrying John Ogden, who's an incredibly famous pianist. And what she's doing with the royalties of her latest release, which is a piece by Ravel. And uh, she's giving that to the homeless charity shelter. So very interesting person. Jan Moore has been speaking to Dr. Patricia Farah, and she is a historian of science. And she's very, very interested in women in science and very interested in, in, in persuading women to work in science as well. Patricia is interviewed by Jan Moore, one of our contributors, and uh, Jan's getting back out there and meeting women again after, you know, a long period of lockdown and having to be away from everybody. So she's having a ball at the moment, going out and meeting people. You can listen to our interviews by visiting womenmakingwaves.co.uk. So today I'm talking to Patricia Farrer, who has been described as one of our most entertaining, incisive and irreverent historians of science, quite a title. She's many publications to her name, contributes to TV and radio and general publications. And today I have a really excited Patricia sitting in front of me because she's just been awarded an amazing American prize. She only heard this morning, so could you just tell us about it? Yes, I got this stunning letter, and this is the citation that's going to appear on my certificate. For outstanding and wide-ranging scholarship on the history of science, especially regarding the physical sciences in the 17th through the 20th centuries, and for bringing attention to neglected contributors to the physical sciences, including female physicists and practical workers, such as navigators and instrument makers. And as you said, I am extremely (laughs) excited because this email arrived about an hour ago and I I haven't landed yet. (laughs) That's incredible. Well done. Congratulations. (laughs) Bet you are. So let's go back a bit then because you started as a physicist doing science. Well, that's right. My first degree was in physics at Oxford, but I've never done any physics since I graduated. I've never been in a lab since then. (laughs) I I decided I, I sort of got rather bored with it. And it was strange back then, uh, because if you got a sufficiently good degree, you were automatically awarded funding for a PhD. And I did what nowadays was would be unthinkable. I turned down PhD funding and went off to earn my living instead. 
Okay. So how did you get from all of that and, and being a physicist, becoming mm. interested in the philosophy and history of, of science? Well, the year after I graduated at Oxford, they introduced a new course called Physics and Philosophy, which is what I would really, really have loved to have done. And so about 20 years later, I had the opportunity to decide what I was going to do. And most of my friends thought I was absolutely mad because the only thing I wanted to do was get a PhD. That seemed to me like the best possible achievement. So I, I lived in London at the time, so I went to Imperial College and I did an MSc in the philosophy and the history of uh, science. But then at the end, I decided, although I was interested in the philosophy, actually I was far more interested in the history and that my PhD was on magnetism in the 18th century. Gosh. <laughs> Which so magnetism then wasn't really a science. That was one of the big things that I discovered. It was uh, mainly to do with navigation. People needed magnetism for practical purposes uh, for sailing around the world. And one of the big lessons I learned about it was to try and forget all that modern physics that I'd learnt in my degree in Oxford, because it took me about a year to realise that electricity and magnetism in the 18th century have got absolutely nothing to do with each other. Whereas, of course, in my mind, they were bound together by all that 19th century physics that I'd learnt. But if you go back, then the situation is completely different. And then after that, I sort of I got various fellowships. I wasn't quite sure what to do, and that's. That stage in the sort of 70s, 80s, 90s, gender studies was not a taboo subject, it was a subject that you did if you were a woman. And I was determined not to be associated with women and physics, so I decided I was going to tackle the central male figure in the history of science, which was Isaac Newton. And I decided that as a woman, that was uh, who I was going to write about. And I did book, write a book about his reputation. One of the most satisfying bits was whenever I gave a talk, there were always some elderly men in the front row of the audience who would ask me a question and say, you don't really know anything about physics, do you? So I would glare at them and say, yes, I've got a degree from Oxford. And I shut them <laughs> off and I love doing that. <laughs> extraordinary. But that, that's all changed. I mean, yes. now, now women, women are winning Nobel Prizes in physics and mm. historians of science who are female are writing about men. Uh, similarly, men are writing about women. I don't, I don't think that applies anymore, but it certainly did then. Mm. And that's why I decided to focus on Isaac Newton. So Isaac Newton has been, you know, as, as you just said, the sort of central mm. um, part of, of, of your professional life really yes. and the writing and and the research so what about um, other things I mean when you're deciding where you're going to be going with following this particular route I mean do you have a discussion with your publisher or this is just an area of interest or something comes out of some work that you're currently doing well I'm a great believer in general when you're doing research I'm a great believer in serendipity and following up anything that happens to come across your path by chance. And I think when you're doing research, that's extremely important because it means you bring things together that hadn't previously been associated with each other. And I wrote a book about science and suffrage during the First World War. 
And I'm not, I'm an eight, 17th, 18th century historian. I don't, didn't know much about the 20th century at all, but it was just chance that suggested that to me because I, I was in the archive at Newnham College and the archivist showed me a beautiful handwritten, handbound book which had been compiled just after the First World War by two Newnham graduates and it showed the names and occupations of about 600 Newnham women who'd been active during the war. And I looked through it and there were what I expected, there were women who'd been in the Red Cross and run committee meetings, been nurses, all that sort of thing. But at the beginning of the book there were several pages describing women who'd done things like uh, vitamin research, they'd gone out to be doctors in Serbia, they'd been working on ballistics, they'd been working on explosives, on tear gas, all sorts of things like that that I didn't associate with women. And so I went rushing off to the university library, which is what academics do, <laughs> and I discovered that there were basically two types of book, relevant books about the First World War. One uh, was a large number of books that had been written um, by mostly by women who were interested in women in the First World War. And those books tend to describe all the women who were taking over physical labouring jobs such as uh, engineering and transport, uh, driving ambulances, all that sort of work, munitions factories. And then there was another group of books which was all about the science during the First World War, because science was very important, but that was all about men. And there wasn't anything about the women who were doing science. So I decided I was going to investigate that myself. And it was quite difficult because very often there's it's very scant evidence about what women were doing. So it needs quite a lot of detective work mm -hmm. to ferret them out. But um, that was what I did in, in the end. I wrote a book about women in engineering and medicine and science during the First World War. And I found quite a lot of them and I'm sure there's far more to be discovered. I'm sure there's sort of diaries and letters in archives in sort of grandmother's flats and all that sort of stuff. So it just needs sort of a lot of tenacity to dig the evidence out, but it is there. Mm, so you're generating, aren't you, the, the interest? Well, I hope so. I mean, I've had uh, a couple of students who, soon after I published that book, they decided they were going to do research projects. On one of them, the first one was a young man, and he did a brilliant dissertation, undergraduate dissertation, on a chemist called Ida Smedley, and he found out far more about her than I had because he was just focusing on her. And he wrote a wonderful dissertation, and other students have as well. So I hope that I've generated interest. And also, similarly, what happened in the Second World War, because the pattern in the two wars was similar, that during the war, everybody was terribly enthusiastic about women taking on these male jobs of being an engineer or a doctor. But then, of course, as soon as the war ended, and unemployment rose, all the jobs went to the men and the women were pushed back into the domestic domain. And that's the sort of general pattern that happened after the First and the Second World Wars, I think. Yes, I mean, women were told that they were giving up their jobs for the men coming back. Yeah, and I think, it, well, for the Second World War, it wasn't really until the 60s that all the women's liberation movements mm. started. And, of course, that was the period that I was growing up in, that I was at school at, during the 60s, so it was very influenced by that. Absolutely. It's just fascinating, isn't it? I mean, as you say, there are probably cupboards in the backs of people's rooms that have got great Aunt Flo's information there that, that showed what she was what she was doing. It is just coming out, isn't it? Well, I yes. I mean, it, it has to be discovered. And I think there's a lot of 
archivists who've got diaries and letters of women of that period. And what nobody realised before is that actually quite a few of those women might have been involved in scientific projects, but it didn't really occur to anyone that women were carrying out that sort of job. So it's, it's real investigative work, isn't it? Really a, a discovery in, in terms of, not as you said, you haven't been in a lab for a long time. Yeah. <laughs> but it's different sort of lab work, isn't it? It's, it's still finding out and making links. and It is, and of course it's all changed over the course of my career, because when I started we didn't really have computers and we didn't have the internet or anything like that, whereas of course we do now. So the nature of the research has changed. It used to be involve a lot of hard work climbing up and down stairs in the university library, but I mean there Although it's wonderful how much you can get on the internet, there's no substitute for seeing the actual documents. And what I'm thinking about in particular is there's a wonderful women's library on the top floor of the LSE Library in London. And I went there and I ordered up some boxes of material. And my favourite thing is I discovered this very tattered envelope and it had a censored stamp on it because it had been read by the inspectors on the way back and it was from a woman who was in the middle of Serbia and she was out there and she was a doctor in the middle of Serbia and she'd written on a tiny little slip of paper in what must have been a stub of pencil she'd written a letter to her friend saying how awful the conditions were how they'd come to their last half an inch of candles it was freezing the bread was all moldy she didn't know what was going to happen to her she did actually survive and come back although a lot of women didn't and there was something really magic about sitting in the middle of this very smart sophisticated library holding this little slip of paper which somehow for over a hundred years had survived and come back to England and was in an archive and I think you know there must have been there must be things like that everywhere I don't believe anybody else had read that particular note it was just that I was interested in it and I, I found it mm. it was a wonderful feeling well the internet isn't the internet can't do that. It is not the same as having the censored envelope and this little piece of paper yes. that's actually been in Serbia in a snowstorm. Yes, yes, because everything just comes alive at that moment, then, doesn't it? This, yeah. this is a well, personal thing. Well, you can see the thing. pencil, or else Gosh. if you read 18th century documents, which are all in pen, you you can see when they're running out of ink because the colour changes, <laughs> or you can see there's a sort of big splotch, or or the sort of the equivalent of if I put a coffee cup down on a piece of paper, you can see all that sort of stuff as well. Or, or when they, they get tired at night and the writing deteriorates, or perhaps they've been drinking, I don't know, and then the next morning the diary starts and it's all sort of fresh and new. So that sort of engages you with the person as an individual, and of course you don't get that on the internet. I was just thinking, I mean, talking about the internet, about where we are currently, because... I was thinking as I was preparing to, to come and chat to you today that over these last months, a year and a half, suddenly science for most of us is completely at the fore. We are recognising scientists mm. on our televisions and we hear the phrase, we're going to be following the science in yeah. terms of making decisions. So I think, I was just thinking that it's a, we now have perhaps a quite a, a different view and sometimes it's not a clear view because the internet can give us not necessarily accurate information mm. and it's not like that piece of paper that you picked up where that person has actually written down what they were doing and what they saw. Yeah I think I mean when everyone says we must follow the science which I 
totally agree with. On the other hand, it is medical science, and I, I think medicine's sort of a slightly different sort of science. I mean, if you if you're sort of talking about I don't know Einstein's relativity and curved time space and things, that's perhaps not everybody does want to get engaged with that. And there are a lot of sort of theoretical debates about whether you have progress in science, whether science really is improving. But I think in medicine, there's it's a different sort of question. I mean, although you could say that society has brought the pandemic on itself in some ways, on the other hand, medicine's very sophisticated and de is developing very effective new ways of dealing with it. So I think medical science is slightly different from the rest of science and engineering, although obviously very closely related. Mm -hmm. And of course there are a lot of people, all the anti-vaxxers, who are choosing to ignore the science. And I think that is a sort of, it's an enormous problem to do with the Covid pandemic, but I think it's a problem in general that quite a substantial number of people are sort of resistant to the imposition of science and perhaps global warming is evidence that perhaps science isn't necessarily always a good thing. Mm. Yes, you may well be right. So, what are you working on at the moment? Are we allowed to know that? <laughs> oh, well, I've got, I've got two, two parallel things going. Uh, one is, um, I've been looking a lot during lockdown, I've been looking a lot of scientific caricatures and writing about those and trying to sort of unpick all the hidden meanings and because I think they reflect people's attitudes towards science. So I mean, the most obvious example is Charles Darwin when his theory of evolution came out and there were lots of lots of caricatures expressing their fears about the relationships between human beings and um, other primates, and a lot of those embodied um, very racist attitudes as well. So I, th I think that sort of thing is extremely interesting. Uh, the other thing I've become very interested in is there's an organism called slime mold, which is a very unprepossessing name. And slime molds, then neither plants nor animals nor fungi, they're, they're in a little group on their own. And there's very, very, very tiny single-celled creatures, but when they're hungry, they can join together and you get this giant, giant single cell with lots of nuclei in it. And they can swarm around and they appear to behave intelligently. So, for example, they can swarm through a maze very, very efficiently to get right to the food in the middle of it without getting sidetracked. Or else there was a man in Tokyo who got a map of Tokyo and the surrounding cities and he put a blob of slime mold on Tokyo and he put oak flakes on all the cities and the blob of slime mold within about 24 hours it had sent out tendrils to each of the oak flakes it didn't just swarm out from the middle it sent out tendrils and the tendrils followed the actual railway network that had been designed by engineers. So they're using some of the ideas of slime moulds in order to write computer programs, to, for instance, to look at all the filaments that are linking the cosmic dark web or to work out things like delivery problems. If you've, if you've got a salesperson and they've got to make a delivery in 20 different cities, what's the most efficient way of driving around them without going through them? So they're sort of redefining sort of what it means to think. And the woman who was the world's expert on slime moulds in the early 20th century was a woman called Guglielma Lister. So I've been very interested in research into her. God, 
you know, I mean, it's hard to get your mind round. Yeah, no, it's extraordinary. <laughs> the, fr- the French word for this thing is le blob. It's named after the American sci-fi movie. Yes. So I found out about Guillaume Lister first because over lockdown I was involved in a project with a musical group called Minerva Scientifica. And we did a series of eight performances at Chelmsford Theatre in Essex. This was all online. And it was a mixture of me giving a PowerPoint and then Francis M. Lynch and various other musicians singing and performing. And then we had a visual artist as well. And we we did a list throughout July and August last year. And the idea was to encourage young women from Essex to become scientists. So we had to focus on a different female scientists from Essex every single week. And that's how I found out about Guglielmo Lister. I was told, right, next week we're doing <laughs> Guglielmo Lister. So by next week I had to have a PowerPoint with slides and information. But I became very interested in her. I'm not surprised. I mean, mm. the idea of this slime... I know. I only found out about that later. I mean, she's a very interesting woman in her own right. She was one of the first members, female members, of the Linnaean Society in, I think it was 1905. And she had this whole network of friends. Because if women were going to do science, they tended to go towards the biological sciences rather than physics or maths. So, I mean, again, I mean, it's rather like what I did for the First World War. There's this whole network of women that are concealed and that we just don't know about. Gosh. So there's, there's no end to the possibilities. You're not uh, short of work to do. No, 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 no. <laughs> No, I've got plenty of ideas. Plenty of ideas. God, yeah. Yeah, well, I, it's such important work that, that, you know, it's there, it's a, a hidden world, and such an important world that, that needs to have a light shone upon it and to, well, for us to be aware of. Well, I think the work on women in particular, I think, is really important because there's still so much discrimination against women in science. I mean, in theory, unlike then, in theory now we have equal opportunity and equal pay, but that's absolutely not true. The average salary of male scientists is far higher than that of women. And one of the things I hope is that by looking at these women a hundred or more years ago, it's relatively easy to see all the prejudice and discrimination that they experienced. And what I still hope is that by exposing that, it'll make us more aware of the prejudice that still survives. So for me as a historian, the whole point of studying the past is to understand how we got to the present. And the point of doing that is to try to improve the future. So that's my basic sort of mission as a historian. Well, it's incredible because it just will hope, hope that we will not be making the same mistakes again. And actually... Well, there's, there's lots this... of new mistakes left to be made, <laughs> I think. <laughs> but this extraordinary resource, otherwise, that we're, we're not mm. validating and we're not using if we're, mm. not, if we're not careful. Yeah, and I think... Talking about women from the past is quite a good springboard for encouraging women now to think about their position and to talk about it. And uh, increasingly, men are very interested in talking about it as well. And certainly the attitude in Cambridge, has, or in academia in general, has changed colossally over just over the last 10 years. And young women students often say to me that they're in despair because nothing's ever going to change. And I just say, well, look how much it's changed just in my own lifetime. So I, I think things are improving.
Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for sharing that with us all. And congratulations again for this wonderful award that you have won. That's, I'm, I'm so thrilled that you've been able to tell us. Well, thank you. Thank you very much. I managed to forget about it while I was talking to you. <laughs> Thank you very much for inviting me to be on the programme. I very much appreciate it. Thank you very much indeed. You're listening to Women Making Waves radio show and podcast, brought to you by Susie Thorpe and Linda Ness. This show is all about women doing extraordinary things.